you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to turn to John chapter 8, and we're going to pick up there, but we're actually not going to stay there for the bulk of our time this morning. We're going to uh, jump back to the, New Te- or to the Old Testament um, and uh, kind of give us a lesson in, I believe, uh, what John is trying to teach us here. But we're going to read, uh, we're going to finish out chapter 8 here, and um, these are... This is Jesus talking to some Jews, and he's got some strong words, and I think there are some pretty big implications for um, really what we believe is happening even in this room, what we believe is happening when we get into our cars, when we go to our houses, what we do at work. Um, So this is John chapter 8, verse 42. Uh, Jesus says to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I have come here from God. I have not come on my own. God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies." Yet because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I'm telling the truth, why don't you believe me? Whoever belongs to God hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. The Jews answered him, Aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan? That's a half Jew, half Gentile. And in that you're demon-possessed? I'm not possessed by a demon, said Jesus, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. I am not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Very truly, I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. At this they exclaimed, now we know that you are demon-possessed. Abraham died, and so did the prophets. Yet you say that whoever obeys your word will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Jesus replied, If I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you did not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and obey his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You are not yet 50 years old, they said to him. And you have seen Abraham? Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, Before Abraham was born, I am. At this, they picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. A ton of things you can pick, you can take from this passage. A ton of things. Um, And I'm going to pick a a basic one that was referenced at the beginning. Um, And it's this. Um, The real belief in a devil. Right? There really is a devil. Um, And the description of the devil is this. Um, He is one who deceives. 
The first reference we have to the devil, to, to the serpent in the Bible, is um, obviously the Garden of Eden. And he wanted to tweak truth. He wanted to say, okay, yeah, you're not supposed to eat of this uh, fruit, but the reason you don't eat of this fruit of the tree, guys, is because you will actually become as powerful as God. You know, and, you know, okay, wow, maybe. Maybe. He took something that sounds so crazy, and he said, I'm going to take it, I'm going to deceive you, right? I'm, I'm going to deceive you, and I'm, I'm going to tweak things. And from that moment on, the world was what? The world was broken. The world was wrought with sin. And, um, you know, here Jesus is saying, the devil is alive. And I'm just wondering if you believe that. If you believe that the devil, the father of deception, is alive, and as the Bible says, he prowls around like a lion and he seeks to devour each one of us. Because that is a, that is a uh, you know, it almost sounds medieval. <laughs> like, it almost sounds medieval uh, when we say it something like this. Okay, yeah, there's a devil, and there's Goldilocks, and there's the three pears, and yeah, yeah, yeah. But this is Jesus. And he's like, look, no, here's the truth. In this world, um, there is the father of this world, and he's the father of deception. And do you know that you live in this world, particularly now in America? I, I mean, I don't know what you believe about our, the state of our nation, but I, I, I really do believe we're post-Christian. I mean, we've got a lot of, you know, obviously history, but I believe fundamentally, at, you know, kind of, the, the majority now, we are, we are a post-Christian world. We're a post-Christian nation. And um, if Easter is true, if the grace of God is true in your heart and you are saved and you believe in him, here's my question to you. If Satan is alive and, and you live in this world, um, truly live in this world, how are you supposed to do that? How are you supposed to be a Christian and engage in your world right now if there is a Satan here, if there's, if there's someone who deceives you? If we live in a broken world, what do we do? Because, you know, I, I think there are a number of, uh, you know, tragedies that we see happen all the time. You see people literally swallowed by the world. And I love this. Um, Joanne Bradley, she's a professor and she says this in speaking about, uh, Amer- or about the church. says, unlike Israel's exile, and this is when Israel was taken over by the Babylonians, she says this, our process of the church's process of secularization is not clearly marked by a hostile takeover. We are losing the land by way of a thousand little changes. Right? A thousand little changes that happen in our culture where Satan will take this world and take your conscience and tweak it. And say, you know what? Come on. Really? Really? You're, you're not going to sleep with this person before you get married? Come on. Every, you know you have to sleep with the, a number of people to figure out what you want I know what the Bible says in Song of Solomon about how it's so exclusive and pure and whatever, but really, you're not going to do that. That is, that is so old-fashioned. You know, look what the world... I mean, we are smart. You vet who you're going to marry. You live with each one of them for a while. 
And you figure out, okay, this is the type of person I want. The Bible says the bed is exclusive, but come on. I mean, that isn't practical. No one is going to do that. You cannot meet somebody who's going to adhere to that. That is just, I mean, might as well be, you know, puritanical here. You ever read the, all of the Chronicles of Narnia? You ever read the beginning of the last book, the last battle? And they ask this question. Um, this, I read this article about this um, Joshua Rogers. He says his daughter um, asked this. You know, there's four of the main characters in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy. And the question was this. Where's Susan? Right? The, the oldest daughter. Susan was the, the queen, the child queen who helped her siblings, right? Save Narnia from the white, rich, white witch. And, and his daughter asked at the beginning of the book, said, Daddy, where, where is she? Where's Susan? Well, see, I said with a, t- a tinge of sadness. And he writes this. Although I've read the Chronicles of Narnia dozens of times since I was a boy, Susan's tragic end gets me every time. The book eventually reveals that Susan grows up and outgrows her love for Narnia. We get few details about her until the end of the book where when when High King Peter responds to an inquiry into his sister's whereabouts. My sister Susan, answered Peter, shortly and gravely, is no longer a friend of Narnia. Yes, said Eustace. And whenever you've tried to get her to come and talk about Narnia or do anything about Narnia, she says, what wonderful memories you have. Fancy you're still thinking about all those funny games we used to play when we were children. Susan thought she'd become too grown up for thoughts of a great king like Aslan and a blessed land like Narnia. And though she had experienced it once, she left it behind. Is that you? Is that the world literally devouring you and say, that was cute? I mean, I did VBS and I did, yeah, some in high school and I went to camp and all that stuff. But, I mean, come on, this isn't real. This stuff, this isn't real. We, we will grow out of Christianity, right? The world will ultimately win. It will ultimately devour us. One more example. Powerful theological film, The Devil Wears Prada. Right, Anne Hathaway, she's this journalism graduate. And Meryl Streep is this girl named Miranda Priestley, and she's this demanding, diva-like figure. Have you ever seen the movie? And all of a sudden she becomes this assistant, and she looks plain and, you know, kind of frumpy. And next thing you know, she engages with this fashion world. And Anne Hathaway, or Andrea Sachs, her name was, she, she begins to not just survive it, she begins to thrive in her role. And if you watch the movie, she begins to change both in appearance and what? And value. And she even overcomes the first assistant. She becomes the first assistant. And near the end of the film, Anne Hathaway is confronted with her transformation. And she doesn't like what she's seen. And Miranda and Andrea, they're riding in the streets, through the streets of Paris, after a fashion show, and this show saw Miranda stop the career of this real loyal coworker named Nigel in order to what? To bolster her own. And both women are there, you know, Anne Hathaway and Meryl Streep are, are well dressed, and 
Miranda's got this fur coat. She's holding her sunglasses and says that, I never thought I would say this, Andrea, but I really... Miranda pauses and turns to Andrea with a look of pride. I see a great deal of myself in you. You can see beyond what people want and what they need, and you can choose for yourself. Andrea shakes her head, Anne Hathaway, in disagreement. I don't think I'm like that. She looks away and continues. I couldn't do what you did to Nigel, Miranda. I couldn't do something like that. You already did to Emily, who was the first assistant. That, that's not what I... No, no, that was different, Andrea said defensively. I didn't have a choice. No, Miranda says, no, 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 you chose. You chose to get ahead. You want this life. Those choices are necessary. But what if, if this isn't what I want? What if I don't want to live the way you live? Oh, don't be ridiculous, Andrea. Everybody wants this. Everybody wants to be us. The world, Satan, it prowls. It seeks to devour you and me. And the question is, is how do we live in it? And that's what I want to look at this morning. How do you live in the world, but not of the world? How do you do it? I mean, how are you supposed to find somebody to marry as a Christian and not of the world? How are you supposed to be a businessman when you know your boss has to land this deal and you will tweak numbers and he will tweak numbers and you will sit there and prepare for a presentation that you know in your gut isn't fully authentic? You know, man, this isn't exactly right. But if I say something to my boss, if I say something to him, In any way, with any type of tone that sounds condescending, that sounds confrontative, I will lose my job. And I've been there, and I know what happens to me emotionally. I just am depressed. I sleep, right? I sleep and I drink, and I don't want that. So you know what? If I have to tweak the numbers, I will. If if I have to start cussing a whole lot to be accepted on this team because that's the way these fellas or these ladies roll, then I will. If I need to look at this kind of material because everyone else is doing it to be accepted, you know what? I just can't, can't stand being a wallflower. I cannot stand being on the outside. So you know what? It's worth it for me to do that. It's worth it. If this is what couples in this area do, if this is the movies that they watch, if this is the, the, the topics that they discuss, then you know what? I'm so tired, right? I'm so tired of the struggle. And how many Christians have we lost? Because that's the struggle, and they get tired, and they say, I'm done. And you look throughout Scripture, and it's not people that are perfect, right? It's not people that are perfect, but it's people that are willing to what? They're, they're willing to stay in the fight. And I just want to bring us to one quick story. Maybe you've heard this story before. But it's the story of Daniel in Jan, Daniel chapter 1. Daniel was a prophet in the Old Testament. Israel had just been defeated. And the Babylonians have come and they've just taken over. Think of Israel. And, and now the Babylonians take present-day Israel and take all the best and the brightest back to Iraq. Right, The Tigris and the Euphrates, Babylon. And that's what they've done. And here is 
Daniel, and Daniel is being removed from Israel, this Christian world, this God-loving, God-fearing world, and brought into the, you know, the belly of the beast here, Babylon. And it reads this. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. Notice God's hand in this. Think of God's hand and why you would be in whatever secular struggle you're in right now. Whatever world you're working through or you feel the, the um, presence of Satan or the presence of a broken world. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind, you know, the best and the brightest, like the, you know, Brad Pitt or whatever. That's old. He's old now, but I mean, you know, someone (laughs) showing my age a little bit more and more. Ryan Reeves. There you go. There's a pop culture guy. All right. Jake Gyllenhaal, there's two good-looking guys that are very smart, um, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. Take on our names, take on our words, learn our books. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter into the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Not only did they take the guys, they took their names, and the chief official gave them new names. Daniel to Belshazzar, to Hananiah Shadrach, to Mishael Meshach, and to Azariah Abednego, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Not only are they going to take you from your home, they're going to take your name and they're going to change it. Now you've got a Babylonian pagan secular name. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. He's in the middle of the world. What are you doing? I can chop your head off. I can do, I can end your job. I can cut you off. And Daniel says, no, no, look, I know I'm in this world, but I can't be of this world. So I can't defile myself with this royal food and wine. A number of commentators have made notes on this particular verse. But the general feel of this, the general flavor is that the, in some way the food and the wine of you know, this time was was blessed, you know, kind of two idols. And Daniel did not, if Yahweh was his God, he was not going to eat food that was blessed to idols. He said, that's the way I'm going to make myself distinct. There's got to be, no, there's got to be a difference. So here's my first question to you. Is there a distinction between you and a non-Christian at your workplace, in your neighborhood, um, in your friendships, maybe even in your home. Is there any distinction between you, if you claim Christ, and a non-Christian? 
If someone followed you around and they entered into, hey, this is, uh, this is someone who claims Christ, is there any distinction that you make? Because, I mean, Daniel's, Daniel, his resolve was, I cannot defile myself. You know, when you see, um, when I hear, I heard this week um, in the dugout, and this was not my son, but a boy who was a, from a Christian family, one of another boys on our team said a not-so-nice word. And this guy very politely stopped him and said, hey, um, it was kind of cute how he said, he said, hey, that word makes me feel uncomfortable. I'm wondering if you could stop saying that. <laughs> I was just like, oh, man, you know? But he was just like, I'm feeling uncomfortable, so don't say that, please. Is that possible? Something went flitter, flitter in his stomach, right? And I just thought, that's, that's his conscience, right? That's Holy Ghost. That's God meeting the world. And he did it in a way that was vulnerable, authentic, but true. He goes, I'm feeling kind of the oppression of it. And the kid kind of laughed him off. Like, okay, I will. You know. But I thought, man, that guy stood up for what he thought was right. He didn't want to defile himself, and he felt that that word, that language, that DNA at that moment would affect him. And so he, as the way only an 11-year-old boy could, said, makes me feel uncomfortable, please stop. That was his way, man. That was like the sword of the Spirit, like the armor of God that, that Paul says, please put on the armor of God when you go out into the world. He made a decision. It didn't mean he left the baseball team. It didn't mean he got, you know, he just took off his uniform and he left. I mean, he still got up to bat and he played baseball. But he said, look, there's got to be a way to, for me to be a Christian on a team that is not full of Christian boys and be distinct yet be in it. And I thought, man, that was a good example of, hey, Daniel, he's not going to defile himself, but he's still there in the king's court. He's still there. Um, And so he asked this official. Now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. And I go back to that little illustration. What do we know? What do we not know? Maybe God's working on that boy's heart, right? On, On the boy who used that language. And he sees this boy and he saw his uncomfortability in his authentic way. He was nervous. He thought, man, I don't even feel that way when I say all those words. Why would he feel that way? What's in him that's not in me? Maybe God is working there. Maybe next week they'll have another conversation. And maybe that kid will go to that kid and say, hey, what, what's the difference? I mean, you still play baseball, but you don't use the same language that I do. You seem to encourage boys more. And me, I'm trying to play for me. It's about me. Baseball is about me. Daniel or God had caused the official to show favor. But the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my Lord the king who has assigned you your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please, test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. And this is our second one. So we're going to do this as a church for 10 days. We're not. We're not. 
He goes, look, I'm going to separate myself. In fact, I'm going to put vegetables in me and water. And you go ahead and have the royal meat and the royal wine that's you know, blessed over these pagan gods, but I need to keep myself pure, so I'm going to go on this Daniel diet here, right? And I, I, want, I want us to see the difference. So he went ahead, and he agreed to it, and tested them for 10 days. The end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. It'd be like a bunch of Christian couples here at Westtown speaking to some neighborhood couples that don't believe in. Hey, you know what? If you want to help your marriages, here's what we're going to do. For, for 10 weeks, we're going to get together and we're going to read the Bible. And we're going to do this. We're going to read what it says about how to love your wife selflessly. It says to serve your wife. And for wives to serve your husband. And we're going to do that, right? You guys, in your marriage, you guys do, do whatever you do. And we're going to do this. And we're going to see what happens. And you know what? When they applied the truth of, of God and, and the, the purity that came from only worshiping God, uh, the difference was evident. And to these four young men... God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. If you read the rest of the book, you see how God uses this. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into a service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. And the king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. Have you ever heard the term Protestant work ethic? A Protestant work ethic. You know, back in the day um, when businessmen would want to hire, what they quickly found out was that Christian Protestants, they had an unbelievable work ethic. You know why? Because they realized that Christians had an audience of one. Where it says in the scriptures, whatever you do, you do it unto the Lord. They realized, oh my goodness, if I hire a Christian to be an accountant or being a lawyer, or be a doctor, or be a teacher, or be a whatever. They work so hard, and so consistently, and they show up, and they don't lie about when, whether or not they're sick or not, and they tell the truth, and they don't steal. And you, and you know what? They, they, they check in and check out on time, and they're, they're responsible. And you know why? Because they work unto the Lord. They realize God is watching them at all times. Not... To, to get nervous that he might in some way condemn them, because, but realizing that they are saved, they're like, I can't believe I get to do this, and I want to work so hard. And so what happened was Christians, Protestant Christians, began to have an influence. Because business people or bosses wanted to hire Christians because he knew it was for his benefit, for the bottom line um, of how Christians work. They worked so hard, and they were so excellent at what they did. And this became a megaphone. This became a platform for Christians. And then people began to ask those with the Protestant work ethic, why do you work so hard? And they began to say, well, I'm not working for you. I mean, you're my boss, but I'm working for the Lord. That's why I work so hard, and I I try to be excellent at whatever I do. 
And well, how, do you, how do you get that inside of you? I don't have that inside of you. And these, you know, these business owners, some, many of them were converted because Protestants worked so hard and so excellently. And they did whatever, you know, whatever they did, they did so well. What if our world believed that about Christians today? That if you hire a Christian, I'll tell you what, they are going to be honest, they are going to be excellent, and they are going to work so hard. What if, that's, what if that or the characteristic or the traits that our, you know, the bosses in the United States of America knew about Christians? And, you know, Daniel and his buddies, they had a tremendous, tremendous influence. It says, verse 20, In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel, with the Lord's blessing, remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. And if you know anything about the Old Testament history, that was the year, right? That was the year in which the Persians beat the Babylonians. And then King Cyrus said to the Israelites, I know you're in Iraq. Here's the deal. You can go back to Israel. You can go back to Israel and rebuild the temple and rebuild Jerusalem. And Daniel... Um, was a main reason. He was a main conduit to allow that to happen. How does the world see you right now? Think about all your non-Christian friends. Think about the friends that you have that you know don't have anything to do with the Lord. How do they view you? Is there anything that they see in your life that's distinct? I hope there is. I hope that your language is different. I hope that that maybe when they watch you spend your money, it's different. You see how this person spends their money? Like what they value. You see how much money they give away? Generosity. How, how can you be that generous? You work for that money. That's your paycheck. And what, what Christians say, it's not mine. God gave me the ability like he gave Daniel to what? To, to do whatever industry or whatever um, job I have. And when Daniel had that mindset, here's the deal. He was in the belly of the beast. He was in Babylon. And you know what? He was Christ there. Right? He was making a difference. He was the little kid saying, you know what? I can't be a part of that language. There, I, I, I want to I be distinct from that. There's got to be something that is different. What is it that you think maybe God is asking you to separate yourself from the world from? Now, we all could move up to Lancaster, PA, right, and be Amish, right? We could do that, right? Nothing. We're going to be completely out of the world, right? Okay, we're not supposed to be in the world, Frank. Well, then let's move to some mountain bunker up in, you know, Montana. And, you know, store up Campbell's soup and just wait, hunker down, right? I mean, that'll be right. I mean, that's the way we really should do it. But who do we look at? What did Jesus do? How did Jesus live? Did Jesus do that? Did Jesus go live his life in a convent? Nothing against, you know, convents. Not say. But did he do that? No, he didn't. He did not do that. He did not say, you know what? I am not going to be in the world. You know what he did? He said, hey, Matthew, I want you to come and follow me. And I know you're a tax collector. He was at, he was with the woman at the well who had 
who was very promiscuous. He was with the tax collectors and the prostitutes. And then he said, hey, 12 fishermen, blue-collar dudes, I want to bring, I want to be in the world with you, and we're going to talk, talk about carpentry, and we're going to be on the banks of the Jordan River. And you know what? I want you to follow me, and I want you to become not fishermen, I want you to become fishers of men. And when he was in the world but not of the world, he showed his disciples how to do that. Guys like Craig Swartz in my life, right? A guy who is a great youth pastor, and he said to me, uh, let's live our life for Jesus. And he didn't say, so quit all the sports, Frank. Don't work really hard at school or try to get into a good university. Just go and just, just share your faith with everybody. He didn't say that. He said, hey, when you play sports, play hard. When you, when you train to be a musician, train hard. If you decide to go to school, get good grades and do well. He, but, but whatever you do, do it unto the Lord, but be distinct. And you will have um, a platform. And you know what? I, I believe our church is full of such... I mean, we have the aptitude in this church, I've said this before, is unbelievable. The ability and, and the professionalism in this church is second to none. I mean... The, the skill that's here in each individual industry is unbelievable. But I think sometimes what we need to work on as a church is how can we be distinct? I mean, you can do it. You can be it. You know what you need to do to be in your work or in your subdivision. But there are sometimes when I do question us as a whole and I say, are we making any distinction as Christians? Or if an alien came down and just watched us, they would say, well, yeah, uh, Tampa West Chase is West Town. West Town is Tampa West Chase. There's nothing distinct between West Chase and West Town. And I want to be like, oh boy, we've missed it. Failure, right? If there's no distinction between a West Towner and a West Chaser, or a, this part of Tampa, or if you're not officially West Chase, I know some people get their feelings hurt because of that, so I don't want to hurt your feelings. <laughs> Whatever subdivision you're in, <laughs> right? right? It's like, if there's no distinction, man... Come on. I mean, if we're just the world, I mean, that's good that we can communicate because Paul says this. Paul says, to the Jew be a Jew, to the Gentile be a Gentile. But why? To win as, to win as many as possible. So if people are being won, then of course. But if there is no distinction and people are not being won, then whoa, we've got to make distinctions. Because maybe you're being devoured. Maybe I'm being devoured. Maybe the materialism of this world is devouring me and my family. And values are changing. And I think Daniel is an example of this. He is free. Because if he loses his head, like Paul said, to live is Christ, to die is gain. If you lose your head, if you lose everybody, all your friends, hey look, to live is Christ, to die is gain. No big deal if you're a Christian. We can all die. We can all die. We can, we can all receive a missile right now from a... From a um, from the Taliban, if we were over there. I mean, you read the news. I mean, it could happen. 140 were killed yesterday. All those, all those Christians, in, those Coptic Christians on Palm Sunday, so two weeks ago, were killed, right? They still held services knowing that they might be attacked, and they did, and they died, and they're free right now. That's the truth of those people. They are absolutely free, and we are free. We are free to live distinctly and to die. And here's Daniel at risk of his life all the time, and he's living for Jesus. He's living distinctly. He's in the world, but not of it. So where are you? 
Are you in it? Right? Or maybe you don't have any non-Christian friends. Maybe you, you know no one who's close to your heart that doesn't know Jesus. That's probably not good. Because we want you to be in the world, having an influence. Befriending those who what? Befriending those who need truth. Truth in love. And so, here's Jesus saying, you know what? There's a battle going on, and Satan's trying to deceive everybody in this room right now. He's trying to tell you there's not a battle. He's trying to tell everybody in this room, it's all good. Just chill out. Right? Go have a beer. Let's, let's, let's go have a beer and watch the Rays game when we get home today. That's cool. Ain't nothing going on. No big deal. And it is, boy, it's a big deal. Our kids are being attacked. Our wives are being attacked. Our mothers and our fathers were being attacked. And he goes, look, be vigilant, pray, read God's word, be in it, but please don't be of it because how many Susans are there? How many people do we know that say things like, what wonderful memories you have. Fancy, you're still thinking about those little funny Christian things we used to do when we were kids. Oh, that's cute. This is cute. That, that's, that's all it is. It'll wear off. No, that's exactly what Satan wants you to believe. So where are you? Make this apply. Jesus frees us to live vigilantly, to live, uh, to, to be missionaries, if you will, in our individual homes, in our individual areas, because um, God wants Christian doctors and dentists and teachers and lawyers and business people in industry changing the world for him. Let's pray and ask him to do that. God, how do we be in it but not of it? I don't know exactly. And there's no formula in Scripture. But there are signs, God. There are signs. There, there are um, symptoms. God, when our language... Um, watching what we do with our time, watching what we do with our money. Um, When we just want to morph into whatever environment we are and we don't in any way distinguish ourselves as kids that have been saved, we are rotten scoundrels that received unconditional grace. And that fact is the game changer. And there's no way we could go years upon years with our next door neighbor actually not understanding what has happened to our heart because we want them to know the truth. Because our heart breaks for our neighbor. But God, Satan wants to build a wall around us. He wants to take crust and put it all around our heart and get it hard. So we simply don't even care about sharing this message. We don't even care if our language begins to change or our values or ethics begins to change. And God, that's, that's, that's the father of lies. So teach us, God. We are called to be wise as a serpent and we're called to be innocent as a dove. And that balance is so hard. It's a struggle. It's a fight. But God, may... We understand that greater is he who is in us than he that is in the world. Thank you. Thank you for a guy like Daniel. In your name, amen.